know anything of their crossing of the flooded Jordan. We don't know where they explored. The, the narrative, as it were, it cuts right to the chase. And we see that the two men are in Jericho. And um, they come to the house of a prostitute, Zonar, whose name was Rahab. So these two words are linked. And if, if we think of this story of Joshua 2 in its chronological and historical context, and you think about the severe sin and the severe judgment of 24,000 being killed because of their sin, and you think here are two more Israelites, and they're going to the house of a prostitute, our expectation would be this story is probably not going to end well. The Israelites don't have a good history here. And so... That's the expectation, the historical expectation. But as we see in this book, and as we particularly see in this chapter, Joshua chapter 2, it's full of unexpected things. And I think that sense of the unexpected is given to us as we think about this historical context. And so the first section of chapter 2 that I want us to look at is verses 1 through 7, and we see here unexpected safety. Not immorality, not judgment, but safety, unexpected safety. So here the two, the two spies choose to lodge here. And we might say, why did they do that? Was it, is it just out of randomness? It could be that they were just looking for a lodging house. Um, oftentimes, um, in, in, in situations like this, the, the lodging house, the place, or we might say the hotel for travelers in ancient towns there would often be a prostitute associated with that lodging. Uh, maybe they were strategic and said that, that maybe there are a number of lodging places around, but the lodging place where it's known there's a prostitute there might be the safest place. Uh, we can go there. We can maintain anonymity. It's the kind of places men come and go. Maybe that was strategic in some way. We don't know all the reasons. The scripture just give us, gives us the bare facts of their arrival in Rahab's house. Uh, and I, I th- again, I think this is uh, strategic in the, in the narrative. We just arrive here. And that gives us something of the force of the situation of these two men at the house of Rahab. Well, the spies were sent out by Joshua. And the natural thing of spying is that you do it somewhat secretively. But somehow their secrecy has been blown. And so we see in verse 2 that somebody observed something out of the ordinary. Somebody might have overheard something. We don't know again. But it's told to the king of Jericho. And the king of Jericho then sends. um, Let's look at verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, we might say this is the Jericho security force. They, send, they go to Rahab's house and they say, bring out the two men, uh, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. It's not looking good for the spies. They found a place of lodging and the king's men have come knocking. And as you're reading the story, you feel somewhat, something of this tension. What's going to happen next? Are they going to be arrested? Is their cover completely blown? But we see something utterly unexpected. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
she had done something strategic. We might say this is the first act of treachery. Rahab acts treacherously in light of her ethnicity, in light of her location. She has acted, as it were, to hide them, to deceive those around them, because her allegiance has changed. She's demonstrating something here. No longer is she giving her loyalty to the king of Jericho, or even the inhabitants of Jericho. She is giving her loyalty to Yahweh, the Lord, the one who leads the people of Israel, the one who would soon destroy Jericho. So she has hidden the man. And so look at what she says to the king's representatives, the security force of Jericho. True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will surely overtake them. Then in verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them with the stalks of flax. Now, it's not explicit here. Did the king's man just get to the door and knock? Did I kind of barge in and look around? I think the way it happens here in verse 6 is the implication is it wasn't obvious that they were in the house. I suspect, again, I just suspect this from the way the narrative functions, that these men from the king probably knocked, forced their way in and looked around. Where are they? Bring them out to me. We're going to take them to the king. The last thing we would expect as we read this story is that a Canaanite prostitute would protect Israelite men. And rather than leading them into idolatry, what does she do? With great courage, she protects them. Now before we go further, I, 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 want, to, I want you to see something of some echoes of another story, a story from Genesis. So I want you to thinking somewhere in Genesis there's a story. I'm going to give you some details and, you, and I want you to try and figure out what story it echoes. There's a city destined to destruction by God. And two men enter the city because God is going to rescue a man and his family from destruction. But at night, before they lie down, the men of the city come knocking on the door, calling for those men to be brought out to them. But the men of the city are blinded to their whereabouts. They don't find them. They can't get them. Have you figured it out yet? The connection is the story of Lot's deliverance from Sodom in Genesis 19. And there's a final link here, which is interesting. We know that when these two men, who are angels, when they first come into Sodom, they enter and their intention is expressed that they want to stay in or, or rest that night in the town square. And of course, Lot compels them to come into his house. But the, the word for town square is the word Rahab. So not only do we see thematic connections, but we even see a, a word link here. Well, the question is, what do we do with a, a connection like this? What do we do when we see these obvious similarities? Well, firstly, we, we need to notice that these similarities, these typological patterns, are historical. They reveal something of what God is providentially doing in time. God works certain kinds of ways. And we're seeing a pattern of how God works we see that Yahweh brings destruction upon the wicked. 
and we see that he is faithful to, to deliver those of faith. Yahweh is a redeeming God. We saw him do that with Lot back in Sodom, and we see him doing a similar thing here. But so far, we, we have still some tension in the narrative. The connection to Lot and to Sodom is there, but we don't know all the facts yet in the way the story is un- unraveling for us. Our expectation is God punishes wicked people. And at the moment, we have a Canaanite prostitute. Shouldn't she be punished? Shouldn't she be part of the destruction? But we also hear these resonances with Genesis, and we see what she has done in hiding the Israelites. What will God do? How will this pattern be borne out in this story as well? And so now we come to the next section of this chapter. Unexpected faith. The unexpected faith of Rahab, verses 8 through 14. Up till this point, we've seen Rahab act. We've heard her say some things, but we don't know yet her motivation. Why would a Canaanite prostitute betray her Canaanite allegiances? Why would she risk her life? That's what she's doing. She's risking her life. If it was found out that she had lied to the king's men, and it actually harbored these people who were going to come in to destroy Jericho, if a treachery was found out, her life would be in danger, wouldn't it? So she has risked her life. What is motivating Rahab to do this? Well, we read as she talks to the spies, she says, um, verse 9, I know that the Lord your God has given you this land. And she unpacks that a little. She says, we've seen the evidence of God's power, that God is with with your people. And then verse 11, she declares... Um, As soon as we heard it, that this destruction, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And here's, here's her perspective. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See Rahab's faith here? It's not just some God of those enemies. She understands who this God of Israel is. She knows his name. His name is Yahweh. She has confidence that he will indeed do what he has said he will do and that he will come in and it is his land and he will bring destruction and he will give the land to the people of Israel. So here is this Canaanite woman living in Jericho with complete confidence and trust in the word of the Lord. Now, we don't know how she heard about this. It's common knowledge that the God of the people of Israel delivered them out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. But where is she getting all the details? Why is she, amongst all the population of Jericho, the one who was trusting in Yahweh? Well, we don't know. That's not the main point of the story, is it? What's the main point? The main point is that of all the people in Jericho, this particular individual who is trusting Yahweh is the one whom God will redeem. Think of the providence of God that we see here in this passage. God in his providence has ensured that, the, that Rahab who was trusting in Yahweh is the one to whom the spies go for lodging. 
In his providence, it's because of Rahab that the spies have safety. It's because of God's providence that Rahab will also be safe. We see in verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. I presume here that she goes up to them and talks to them on the roof, probably for secrecy. She's hidden them there. She's going to go up and talk to them. And when we see here Rahab's confession of faith as she engages with these men. You see, she has already demonstrated her faith in Yahweh, and now we see her profession of faith, the words that she speaks. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, we have a commentary here on Rahab. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. See, the rest of the residents of Jericho, they expected something to happen. They expected destruction. And so their hearts melted. But that melting of fear did not create a a change in their hearts. It's only Rahab who understood not only that this is a God who can bring judgment, but that this is a God who is worthy of trust, worthy of her allegiance, worthy of her confidence. And so Rahab appeals to the spies. She wants some relief. She says in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me, That by the Lord, that is by the name of the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. I think there's something interesting happening here as we see Rahab's faith, Rahab's desire to see God save her and help her, that Rahab in chapter 2 is being compared in some way to Joshua in chapter 1. God says to Joshua, I'm giving you the land, I will deliver it into your hands, I will bring destruction, be strong and courageous. And what do we see Rahab doing here? Rahab is confident that the land is the Lord's, he will give it to the people of Israel, he will bring destruction and judgment, and what does Rahab do? Rahab acts with strength and courage. Her confidence is that the Lord has given you this land. And so in the book of Joshua, we see Joshua responding to God. He gives commands to the people of Israel. But in chapter 2, we hear, as it were, a profession of faith, an expression of confidence, a personal testimony of someone who is trusting in Yahweh. Rahab gives this confession of faith. So in so doing, what do we see here? Rahab is a model of faith. She is someone who's risked her life demonstrating her confidence in the Lord. Her faith is, her, her works are justifying her faith. 
But not only do we see Rahab's faith in parallel to Joshua's in Joshua 1 and 2, but there's another passage of Scripture which compares Rahab's faith to somebody else. Turn with me to James chapter 2. It is astounding, we might say unexpected, that the faith of the commander of the army of the people of Israel is compared to the faith of a Canaanite prostitute. But we see also in James chapter 2 and verse 23 that her faith is also compared to the faith of Abraham's. Look at James chapter 2 verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? There's not a qualitative difference between Abraham's faith and Rahab's faith. Both are genuinely trusting the Lord and the reality of their confidence in the Lord is borne out in their actions. And so we see Rahab, not only does she have a faith similar to Abraham's, we see therefore that she will enter into the blessing that is Abraham's as well. Last week, Pastor Joe read from Genesis 12, and I just want to read there again, because it's important that we see these large connections. Here is God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we read through the history going on from Joshua chapter 2, what do we learn about Rahab? She's saved. Of all the inhabitants of Jericho, she and her family who are residing in her, in her house are saved. But more than that, she marries a Hebrew, a man by the name of Salmon. I wonder if he was one of the two spies. We don't know, but it's kind of, it's kind of cool, I think, if maybe he was. One of the questions I have in, for glory. Well, so, so Rahab marries Salmon, and as we look at the generations, Below her, it ends up being that she's the great-grandmother of King David. And so she is especially noted in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. And so here, we have, I think, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Here is a Gentile, a Canaanite, a sinner, of ill repute, who is grafted in to the people of Israel and receives the blessing of the people of Israel. As I think of this this picture of the gospel that we see here in Joshua 2, I think of what we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 17. And Christ Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so as we think of this story, there are lots of things happening, but certainly one of them is God's redeeming purposes, not just for the people of Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. Well, let's get back to the story here um, and pick up where the spies here are in hiding. They haven't been captured by the king's men, but they still have a problem. They're in Jericho, and the gates of Jericho have been closed. Verse 14, we see that they do make a promise. Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we'll deal kindly and faithfully with you. The problem is, the spies need to get back to Joshua to be able to fulfill their promise. How is that going to happen? What is their deliverance? And so we see in verses 15 through 21, unexpected deliverance for the spies. Resourceful Rahab has a plan. Rahab's house sits on the outer wall of Jericho. It's part of the wall. And so she is, her window is on the wall. And so she has a rope. Where did Rahab have a long, where did she get this long rope from? I mean, was it in a basement just waiting? I don't know. It's one of those curious details of the story. But she has a rope and she lets the spies down through her window to escape to the hills. And so the spies have this experience of an unexpected deliverance. That's what we read in verse 15. But verse 15, um, I think, acts um, like a narrative break in the dialogue. If you were to read this absolutely sequentially, then you'd read it like this. Rahab goes up to the roof. The spies are under flax. They have a conversation. Then she gets a rope. The spies are being let down out the window by the rope. The spies are now outside the window going down by the rope. And then they break into another conversation beginning in verse 16. I think it's better to see that Verse 15 is like, um, gives some energy to the narrative, to energy to the story. But what's happening in verse 16 and following is just more follow-up from the dialogue that they had on the roof. It wouldn't be very good to try to have a uh, conversation like verses 16 and following out the window on the walls of Jerusalem. Like that would not seem to be the best kind of idea. So that's why I think that's how we should read what's happening here in this narrative structure. Rahab gives them instruction, we see in verses 16 and following. She tells them where they need to hide. She's told the king's men they must have escaped down that way towards the river. So she knows to tell the spies, don't go down that way because that's where the, the king's law enforcement officers are. You need to go up to the hills. You need to head up there for three days. That's where you'll find safety. Then the spies say something to Rahab. They say, you know what, Rahab? We're going to keep our promises to you. If you keep this deal a secret, if you make sure no one else knows other than you, and that this news doesn't spread around town, if you keep this private and secret, we'll know, we'll deliver you. And in order for us to deliver you, you need to put a a scarlet cord in the window to identify your house as the house in which where to protect all the inhabitants. 
how things have profoundly changed for Rahab. Just when you think about Rahab's inner experience here, she's in Jericho, she believes Yahweh is the God, God of the heavens, God of earth. She's confident that God has, is going to deliver the land into the hands of the Israelites. She's confident that Jericho is going to be wiped out, just like the Israelites wiped out Sion and Og. And she's thinking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? We don't know if she prayed, but we might suppose that maybe she was praying to Yahweh to save her and deliver her. She has no hope of deliverance. And then these two spies stumble into her home. She realizes they're Israelite spies. She protects them, and she's thinking, possibility of deliverance. I wonder if she was rehearsing in her mind what she would say to the spies when she ran up to them on the roof. How how she would present her plea for deliverance. I believe in Yahweh. I believe he is the God of heaven and the God of the earth. I believe he is faithful to all his promises. I will believe he will deliver this land into your hands. I've dealt kindly with you. Will you deal kindly with me? What kind of relief must have been in her heart as she and the spies talk? So let's look at verse 15 and see what the men say to her. We'll be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on your head. We see here some typological themes, some, some themes here of Passover. Remember when Passover was first instituted, the people are in the land of Egypt. And through the mouth of Moses the prophet, God says, there will be destruction coming to, to uh, the people of Egypt. The firstborn of all the families would be destroyed. And the only way to protect your firstborn is to sacrifice the animal, to put the blood on the doorpost and the lintels, expressing your confidence that God will deliver those who trust and obey him. And we see here a similar thing happening with Rahab. There's this thread of scarlet on the windowsill. And when the people of Israel see the sign, she won't be destroyed. They will pass by her house. But if anyone steps out of the house, steps out of that element of protection, they will certainly be destroyed. God is a redeeming God. God is a faithful God. God is a God of judgment. And as we read this story, we we again see God's faithfulness to save, God's faithfulness to redeem, God's faithfulness to see those who are trusting him. We'll come now to the last section of chapter 2. An unexpected report. Let's go down to verse 22. So the spies depart 
They go up into the hills, they remain there for three days, and then they return. They come down from the hills, they pass over and come to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And when you see the emphasis of this report, now it does say the spies told Joshua everything that happened. But what we have recorded in Joshua 2 is the most important thing that the spies said. The most important thing that the spies said was not about the size of Jericho, the size of the walls, the nature of their fortifications, the nature of their gates. But their report is the recounting of Rahab's declaration. Go back to Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. God says to Joshua here, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And here at the end of chapter 2, what, what do we find here? The spies are recounting something. And what they're recounting is good reason not to be frightened or dismayed. Truly, they say, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They're paraphrasing what Rahab had told them. So through utterly unexpected events, the spies bring encouragement to Joshua through the mouth of Rahab. This is further encouragement to Joshua not to be dismayed, not to be discouraged. Why? Because God has indeed given the land into your hands. So God's key encouragement to Joshua here, and I think a key encouragement that we should draw from this text, is that we are to look to the character and the promises of God and not to the circumstances. If you just look at the circumstances, this story would seem to come out very differently. But God did a whole lot of utterly unexpected things. And in that process, time and time again, showed his faithfulness, showed his good providence, and brought encouragement to Joshua as he would lead the people in the promised land. God is faithful. And God can bring encouragement from all kinds of unexpected sources. God is powerfully at work in details that we cannot even imagine. God is working out a plan that's not just about the deliverance of Jericho into their hands and the deliverance, deliverance of Jericho into their hands for destruction and the deliverance of Rahab from destruction. God is not bringing, merely bringing encouragement to Joshua, but we see that generation after generation, God is doing something even now for the long plan of history that Rahab would become a significant part of the heritage of King David and the heritage of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider this story,